What's up, Poison Pals? Welcome back to That Shit is Poison with your co-host, Megan Gesner. And your other co-host, I guess, Rini Potts. It is so awkward going <laughs> second. T- You're right, Megan. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's awkward, right? Going second is awkward. This is why we go back and forth. It's okay. You know, we live and we make do. Yep. We live, laugh, learn. Yeah. So welcome back, Poison Pals. Just another week. <laughs> It is another long week. You know, we re- we it, go ahead. What nothing, nothing. Say? I was I had literally nothing to say. Nothing to say. I have no talking points this <laughs> this time around. So uh, we record mm-hmm. typically at nighttime because you know we're busy during the days. We got our own stuff going on during the day. Yeah, we are working women. Yes. <laughs> so when we get on the you know recording platform and we like just start to go sometimes stuff doesn't come to our brains quickly because you know it's just been a long day and it's late late quote unquote you know 8 p.m or past that time so yeah if you're wondering why sometimes we just talk mm-hmm. gibberish or like can't pull anything out of our brains it's just because <laughs> like you know the circumstances of yes a long day and we don't really mm-hmm. know what to say exactly well actually i lied i do have one talking points that Great. i wanted to share with our poison pals so basically i i was honestly getting very embarrassed that my friends would come text me and you know message me about these poisoning stories and they're like oh mm. did you see this poisoning happened here or did you hear this update on this and i am just so slow on the uptake that i'm just like no (laughs) and i'm just like oh my god i need to like get on my shit so i decided Mm -hmm. for the first time in life i've never signed up for google alerts ever but i decided to sign up Mm -hmm. for google alerts for poisoning which will probably get me tracked down by the fbi at some point but that's okay (laughs) Uh, but through this i was able to enjoy Mm -hmm. the fruits of my labor the other day because on one of my google alert emails i got an email from vice okay and it is on an article that i think will be of interest Mm. specifically to megan but definitely to all our poison pals because it is a topic that has been brought up several times on some of our episodes so let me pull up that article and share that with you now the article is by Vice, like I said, uh, written by Matthew Galt, and the title is Court to Decide Whether CIA Can Hide Documents About Poisoning Assassinations. Mm. Wait, did you hear about this one, Megan? I did not, but there was something that came up recently about um, some like, okay, they were either FBI or CIA, but they were, this mm-hmm. gentleman was on his deathbed and he finally like released a document Or a statement saying like, oh, we definitely had some involvement in the assassination of Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. And like that tied into what you're about to talk about because I was like, oh, like I was just thinking about like, when are they allowed to say (laughs) their their involvement in things? Apparently it's when you're on your deathbed. But uh, (laughs) go ahead, Harini. So... Essentially, what this article entails is there is a journalist, Mm -hmm. J.M. Pora, P-O-R-U-P, and he filed a Freedom of Information Act request, or FOIA, on May 1st of 2015, asking the agency for any and all documents relating to CIA use of poison for covert assassinations. And at that same time, I think the CIA responded rather quickly to the request, and (laughs) their response 
was honestly such a cop out. Mm. They, they basically said the CIA has no files or documents relating to covert poisoning assassinations done by the CIA because poisoning is illegal. Therefore, the CIA would not have any such documents on hand. Okay. Which is like, all right. But they basically sent him back this whole email stating like, oh, please read the, what is the word for it? I was going to say scriptures, but that's <laughs> that's not the right word. The CIA scriptures. No, it's the CIA like rule book or whatever, the, the guidebook. They're like, please refer to our guidebook that states that the CIA is not allowed to deal in mm. any illegal activities, including poisonings and assassinations. Therefore, we would not be taking part in such activities. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, People who work at fast food restaurants are supposed to wear gloves or something, right, when they handle food. And yet we see plenty of videos of people behind the counter just manhandling that that lettuce. <laughs> so Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. When I'm ordering my vegetarian paneer tikka masala, I fully expect <laughs> to not see straight chicken bones in my paneer tikka masala, which has happened far too often in my lifetime mm, yeah so much for those <laughs> scriptures <laughs> exactly but anyway so that was in 2015 so obviously now it's 2021 so this is yeah. brought back yeah. up to the surface i'm not sure really why maybe it's because of the new administration with biden that this is coming up to the surface again but essentially the most current update is that the case has made its way to the u.s court of appeals for the dc circuit it is ongoing, but you can listen to the opening arguments mm. on this vice or from this vice article. So if you guys are interested in that, Poison Pals, mm. uh, we will put a link to this article in our show notes and you can access it there. Wow. But yeah, so that's kind of what's happening. And we will keep you up to date if there's any other news that comes up out of this, because this would be very of interest for us, of course, considering that the stories that we've done in the past with MK Ultra and so on and so forth. But the reason why I wanted to bring up this article is because this is actually the notion and the sentiment that Megan has brought up a few times during those episodes. So Megan, for our listeners that are just joining in right now, why don't you speak on mm. why this article is of importance to you in, in terms of the, the episodes that we've discussed in the past? Yeah. So in previous podcasts, specifically when we talk about assassinations that most likely involve some sort of government entity or like larger powers at play. For example, MK Ultra and the assassination of Shastri, you know, there's this, uh, well, MK Ultra, it's very explicit yeah. <laughs> in um, uh, involvement of the CIA. Mm -hmm. um, but no one has like owned up to it. And so I always kind of pose the question of like, mm -hmm. how much time needs to go by yeah. before we as a society slash the government can be like, hey, you know, <laughs> we can totally like say we did mm -hmm. this now because mm -hmm. enough time has gone by. Enough generations have passed where we can be like, yeah, yeah, we did this. So yeah, that's that's usually a question I have. Yeah, completely. And I totally agree with that sentiment mm -hmm. too. The thing is, the CIA yeah. can deny, deny, deny all they want, but it is almost like pretty much fact at this point that the CIA has used poisoning in the past and has used poison to uh, suppress or even kill off their enemies. I mean, in this article itself, you see the headline picture is the most famous picture from the hearings um, at the time during the church committee hearings in the 1970s, which 
for our listeners that remember and, and listen to the MK Ultra part one and part two episodes. The church committee was a committee that essentially was formed after MK Ultra and was used to bring MK Ultra down. And in this picture, it's Representative Frank Church from who's the Democrat from Idaho. Um, and he's holding up a specifically or specially designed poison dart gun that the CIA had developed. So they were doing quite a lot of research and pumping out quite a lot of projects and things like that. For them to say that they never engaged in any such activities is, you know, just a blatant lie at this point. But yeah, I just thought that was an interesting article. So if anything comes out of that, we will let you know. But that is all to say a little bit of what Megan was alluding to with the assassination of Malcolm X. My story today is along a similar vein, for sure. Although this episode is coming out a little bit later, we're recording this episode during the month of February, which is a very special month. It is Black History Month, and I am so excited to be able to share this story with our Poison Pals and just the general public because it is a story that is not well known and it is you know just a tragedy that it's not more well known so I'm just completely honored that I was even able to know this story and to bring it to the podcast so excited so yes poison pals it is Harini's turn to regale us with an amazing story today um so that being said you know what to do get comfortable (laughs) yes grab your favorite libation Mm, herb mm what have you chocolate i don't know yes chocolate (laughs) damn yes get some chocolate sit back relax and uh harini it is Mm -hmm. time for you to pick Pick your poison poison. hell yeah let's go let's go all right guys so like i said my story today is going to highlight a Mm -hmm. unsung hero of the african-american community Mm -hmm. A story that is not told often enough. My entire story is honestly mm-hmm. pulled from a movie that has come out very recently that I was able to watch mm-hmm. two weekends back now with my brother and my sister-in-law, Swetha. Fantastic, fantastic movie. It is called Judas and the Black Messiah. You can find it on HBO Max. I highly recommend watching it. But my story today is pulling from that movie as well as obviously other sources from that time. So let me get into the sources first. Let's get that um, out of the way at the top of the episode so we can just get straight into it. So the first source is from The Esquire by Nick Pope, The Strange True Story of William O'Neill, Judas and the Black Messiah, a Washington Post article by Robert Mitchell. There's actually two that I got from him from the Washington Post, both on Fred Hampton and the assassination surrounding and the events surrounding his assassination. I got two articles, toxicology articles, and then the National Library of Medicine and Wikipedia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it, but I know that that name has been like popping up on my Instagram and sometimes like the like the movie stills will pop up on my Instagram, but mm. I actually don't know what it is about, Okay, uh, yeah. but it's on my list. So I'm excited to hear what you got to say. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to tell it. Yeah, but this mm-hmm. since this I am pulling this from a movie, although it is like real life history. I don't know. I was gonna say it might be a spoiler alert, but also not really since it it is real life. We'll put a, uh, a spoiler alert disclaimer yeah. when we. Uh, this is the disclaimer on the uh, podcast <laughs> description, the episode description. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sounds yeah. good. So spoiler alerts. <laughs> even though technically this is public right, knowledge right. already. 
So we will okay. give you that, Poison Pals. Okay, let's get into it. This is going to be the story of the mm-hmm. truly tragic assassination of Fred Hampton, who was the deputy chairman of the Chicago, Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. So starting with a little bit about his bio and some background. So Fred Hampton was born on August 30th, 1948 in Summit, Illinois, and then he moved with his mm-hmm. parents to Maywood, which is where he grew up predominantly. Mm-hmm. And both of these are suburbs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Just a real brief background on Fred's ancestry. His parents were part of the great migration of African Americans in the early 20th century, which was primarily a migration from the South to like the North and West, specifically from mm-hmm. Louisiana. So that's kind of his history um, and how they came to Chicago. In terms of his youthhood, he was very gifted in the classroom, very much so, as well as in sports. Mm. He was great at baseball and aspired to play center field for the New York Yankees. From a very young age, Mm -hmm. he was not your typical kid whatsoever. He's actually quite remarkable Mm -hmm. and had this strong sense of community. For example, when he was 10 years old, he hosted weekend breakfasts for other kids in the neighborhood. And he actually cooked the food himself, if you can believe that, in what he describes as an early precursor to the Panthers free breakfast program. Later in high school, he led walkouts to protest exclusion of black students for being nominated for homecoming queen and king and spoke up to school superiors to hire more black teachers and an administration. So, you know, clearly even from the get go, he, Mm -hmm. you know, just speaking up for the more disenfranchised and so on and so forth. He had this strong moral compass for sure. He graduated from Proviso East High School with honors, varsity letters, and Junior Achievement Award, which led him to enroll in Triton Junior College, where he majored in pre-law. I mean, as you can tell, this young man from the get-go was a voice for the people, the disenfranchised, the discriminated, in a very unique way to see in such a young person. In 1966, so this is one year after the start of Operation Rolling Thunder, which involved the bombing of North Vietnam. And around this time, especially with the Vietnam War going on, he identified with the third world socialist struggles and read rhetorics of communist leaders like Che Guevara, Ho Chi Minh, and Mao Zedong, which he definitely, like I said, identified and resonated with. And from that, he held the stance of supporting peace for Vietnam. Unsurprisingly from all this, Fred became an active member in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, and became a leader in their youth council. Mm. So then around this time is when, you know, the Black Panthers started to gain some popularity, starting in Oakland, right here in California, and then really just spreading across to the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And this is in the mid-1960s. So the Black Panther Party, or the or BPP, was becoming increasingly popular on this mm-hmm. national scale. And I want to start this part of the story off of the quote, because now I'm talking about the climate of 1960s America at this time, which was just rife with racism. So the quote is, if you're white, you're right. If you're black, stay back, Mm. which really just is a very unfortunately accurate statement of the time. 
So Fred was very attracted to the Black Panther's approach, which was based on the 10-point program that integrated Black self-determination with class and economic critique from Maoism, which I will read to you now. Mm-hmm. These are the 10 points that really made up pillars of what the Black Panthers stood for and what they were always fighting for. So I thought it'd be interesting mm-hmm. for me to share that with you so to give everyone an idea of the foundation of their organization. So the first one is, we want freedom, we want power to determine the destiny of our black and oppressed communities. Two, we want full employment for our people. Mm. Three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black Mm. and oppressed communities. Four, we want decent housing. This was a big one. This was a really big one. Fit for the shelter of human beings. Five, we want decent education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. Six, we want completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality Mm -hmm. and murder of black people, other people of color, all oppressed people inside the United States. Eight, we want an immediate end to all wars of aggression. Nine, we want freedom for all black and oppressed people now held in U.S. federal, state, county, city, and military prisons and jails. Mm -hmm. We want trials by a jury of peers for all persons charged with so-called crimes under the laws of this country. Ten, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, peace, and people's community control of modern technology. So I think there's this notion that the Black Panthers were this radical extremist, you know, almost like socialist party, which is, you know, how they were viewed during this time as a very communist-esque group and mostly based on what they were fighting for. And so these are the 10 commandments, so to speak, of what they were fighting for. Mm-hmm. And, for. and to me, honestly, it's like, these are just basic, simple asks, you know, like, mm. I just want education for my kids. I want a proper roof over my head. Mm-hmm. I want a fair trial. These are all things that we would all want. You know, this is not mm-hmm. radical, you know? Yeah, that's, um, you know, I hear those 10 points. And I agree with you, Harini. Like, I'm like, that all makes sense. I'm like, I understand why they're asking for that because I would want the same thing if I knew that other people in our country were getting it, but I wasn't based on the color of my skin or my religion or sexuality. And it's so kind of blatant and glaring, you know? Mm -hmm. So I totally get those requests. I think what always will kind of, I don't know, flummox me Mm -hmm. or confuse me is that... At that time, and even today, there are people that look at those requests and are like, that is just too much. Mm -hmm, That is mm -hmm. absurd. And I'm like, when do we decide that those things are not out of the question, like (laughs) not so absurd to like be asking for? So it just kind of, it always will blow my mind. Because yeah, like I'm sure real talk, white people in power mm-hmm. back then saw those 10 things and were like, yep. well, that is just right. too lofty <laughs> of a list. Like, that would be impossible. Yeah, you're asking way too much. Right. That would be impossible to deliver. How dare you? Exactly. 
So, yeah. Yeah. No, I completely echo your sentiments. Mm -hmm. It's like they're looking at these ass and they're going, are you Mm -hmm. kidding me? Like (laughs) the audacity for them to even ask of such a thing. Well, you know, meanwhile, Mm -hmm. they're just sitting pretty. So in November of 1968, he joins the party's newly formed Illinois chapter founded in late 1967. Fred, along with his comrades, as they called them, or brothers and sisters, made significant strides in that first year alone. One of his biggest accomplishments, though, by far, was brokering a non-aggression pact among Chicago's most powerful street gangs. They emphasized that racial and ethnic conflict among gangs would only keep the members deep in poverty Mm. And not help them rise above. But together, as a united front, they could be this multi-racial alliance called the Rainbow Coalition. Mm. Although this is a Black History Month story highlighting Fred Hampton, I think it would be incomplete to talk about Fred Hampton and not talk about the Rainbow Coalition. Got it. As Fred was not only all about fighting for Black folks, he was fighting for all people, all oppressed people. Mm -hmm. I would say that the formation of the Rainbow Coalition was Mm -hmm. one of his biggest and greatest accomplishments. Mm -hmm. So let me speak a little bit more about the climate in the 1960s, specifically in Chicago. Racism was really, you know, at its peak in Chicago. It was considered Mm -hmm. the most segregated city in America, and not just to black folks, but to Latinos, Southern whites, Native Mm -hmm. Indians, list goes on. Mm -hmm. And this is something interesting. So the information I'm going to be speaking on next came from one of my sources which was a pbs documentary called the Mm. rainbow coalition highly recommend watching this documentary we'll put it in the show notes as well but they interviewed people Mm. who were a part of the rainbow coalition who were who made up these different gangs and Mm. political parties at the time and it was very engaging very interesting documentary anyways so One of the parties involved was actually a group called the American Patriot Party composed of these white Southerners. Mm. And so I wasn't really familiar with this at all, but a lot of white Southerners also migrated up north to these bigger cities, including Chicago, because they hear of the cities are full of opportunities, full Mm -hmm. of jobs, more money, um, better Mm -hmm. housing and living conditions. Mm -hmm. So of course that these people are going to come there. Mm -hmm. One of the people that were being interviewed that was part of this American Patriot Party, he discusses his first time in Chicago, having just moved there. He describes everything as incredibly separated. Everything was segregated Mm -hmm. and they couldn't get any jobs. No one was giving them jobs. No one was even giving them interviews. They were called white Mm -hmm. trash for the very first time in their lives. And since they couldn't get any jobs, they literally had to sell blood Mm -hmm. to survive. And from these shared struggles, experiencing this intense discrimination from their own people, they formed this American Patriot Party. So that's one party. Then you have the Puerto Ricans. Again, heavy segregation for the Puerto Ricans. They couldn't eat at certain restaurants. They couldn't even be seen on certain beaches. Mm -hmm. And the first time that you really see or inside look into what this was like was in West Side Story, the movie. This was the first time seeing the racism and the segregation of the Puerto Ricans versus these, you know, white socialites, essentially, through cinema. And this is where the gang and, you know, activist Mm -hmm. movement, the Young Lords, comes out of. And they get their red colors from from West Side Story because the gang, the Puerto Rican gang in West Side Story, their colors, they were all red. Those were their colors. So 
the Young Lords pulled those colors from there as an inspiration. One of the Puerto Ricans interviewed in this documentary, they recall being beaten by police like it was a regular occurrence. There was a handcuff on the chair and they would handcuff them to the chair and then beat them with a phone book because the phone book left no marks. And they just took it because, quote, who do I complain to? Mm. So it was just a lot of shit happening, you know? And then there's this urban renewal project in Chicago, which was well known at the time as this big to-do that the mayors got funded by the government. On the surface, they described it as this beautification of the city, providing more housing for the communities moving into the city. It's a family-oriented city, these new housing complexes and so on. But really, that was in no way what it was supposed to be. Yeah, it was great Mm -hmm. for the upper middle-class white communities. Mm -hmm. But this was all happening because of white flight, which was essentially the white communities did not like the fact that people of color were moving into their homes, their their community areas, and they were fleeing those communities. Mm. Of course, the predominantly upper middle class white political side of Chicago did not want that. They wanted to keep their white community. Mm-hmm. And so they did this whole urban renewal project where they were literally funded by the government to tear down the slums and ghettos mm-hmm. that the blacks, whites, and Puerto Ricans lived in. Mm-hmm. They essentially all got displaced and moved into these abysmal excuse for homes and housing. Mm. And then Martin Luther King Jr. died in 1967, and that really shook things up in a major, major way. Fred and a few of his close brothers in the Black Panther Party decided to go to a JOIN meeting. Mm -hmm. JOIN standing for Jobs or Income Now, which was led by the American Patriot Party made up of the Southern Whites. So let me just emphasize the nature of that sentence Mm -hmm. let me just preface this by saying just because Mm -hmm. these southern whites and the american patriot party were also being discriminated by white folk that did not mean whatsoever that they felt a shared compassion felt a shared struggle with the black panther party or even with the young lords they were complete separate entities they did not really interact with one another at all So for Fred and just like, you know, a handful, maybe three or four other of his brothers to walk into this room full of white people, unannounced, uninvited, it's quite ballsy. Let me just put it at that, right? Mm. But he did it because he knew that if he was able to get in a room with these people and they let him speak to them, Mm. he could find a common ground where they could agree to work together, essentially. And that's exactly what he did. Mm. He was extremely successful. He shows up and he extends this proverbial olive branch, hoping that they grab onto it. And they did. He asked them, what are your grievances? Mm -hmm. What are you struggling with? How can we help you address them? How can we best support you? Mm-hmm. It's like, aren't you sick and aren't you tired of this? That we are paying our police to beat us, that we are paying our police to kill us, mm-hmm. that we are paying our cities, our government, and through our taxes for this housing that mm-hmm. isn't going to us, for this education that isn't going to our kids. Mm-hmm. And all of this really struck a nerve in the best possible way with the American Patriot Party. And they're like, you're right. We're struggling the same struggle. And by the end of the meeting, they were figuring out meeting times together. They were figuring out, okay, what can we do next in terms of policy? What can we push for? What can we protest for? Let's do this together. They fully banded together. 
to fight against their common issues, and it really worked. There was power in numbers, their voices were amplified, and they were getting shit done. The Puerto Ricans as well started to join with the Young Lords, and together they formed this Rainbow Coalition. And just as a quick note, I was talking about Urban Renewal Project and how housing was such a big issue um, for these different factions. And that's because for the Puerto Ricans in particular, they had been trying to get sanctions to build a daycare for their kids over and over again because their homes were so old and so run down and just not up to date by the the city housing standards, the kids were literally getting lead poisoning by staying in the home. Mm. So in order to avoid that, this daycare was going to provide a safe space for the kids to learn and all the things. But the city kept denying them on these petty quests that the ceiling's too high, the floor is not level, etc. So Rainbow Coalition was truly the first of its kind to be seen in Chicago, let alone the entire United States. These wildly different groups of people, white farmers, blacks, Latinos, and more coming together to fight for the same causes. It was unheard of during this time, and it was all due to Fred Hampton's unifying magic power to bring the people together. With all this amazing work, no doubt Fred Hampton rose quickly in the Black Panther Party. He was incredibly charismatic and had the gift of speech. He was an orator. Orator or orator? I never know. Um, I say orator, but that's because I like to like pronounce my heart. Uh, some people do say orator. You can do whatever your heart desires. I like orator. Orator. He was a gifted orator. Whatever it was. If he spoke, you listened. <laughs> mm-hmm. He organized weekly rallies, participated in strikes, worked closely with the Black Panther Party's local People's Clinic, which was an amazing, amazing program where mm-hmm. they led this free health clinic. Uh, because the the current healthcare system was not up to standard mm. for them, and they were actually amazing when it came to the mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS epidemic through a public health perspective, mm. because they were providing so much patient education and health education mm. on what AIDS was, what HIV was, proper sex education tools on how to prevent it. Really, really great stuff. He taught political education classes every morning at 6 a.m. and launched a project for community supervision of the police, which supervised and kept people safe on the streets. Mm. Hampton was also instrumental in the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program, which I kind of alluded to in the beginning of the story. And he was made national deputy chairman of the Black Panther Party of Chicago, Mm. which I believe is the highest rank that you can have in your local chapter. However, the nationwide Panther leadership was simultaneously being decimated Mm. by the FBI's Cantel Pro, which stands for Counterintelligence Program, which was a series of covert and illegal projects led by the FBI to dismantle in their eyes what were deemed communist or extreme political groups in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the Black Panthers were very friggin' high on that list. Also, simultaneously, mm-hmm. Fred was just climbing that ladder in the Black Panther Party like wildfire. He was electric. The people loved him. He was, in many ways, truly their messiah to see them through these dark times. Yeah. He was in line to be appointed to the party's Central Committee's Chief of Staff, which is one of the highest ranking positions nationally for the Black Panthers Party. And he would have achieved this position had he not been killed on December 4th, 1969. So I'm going to pause right there. Megan, do you have any thoughts or comments? No, I'm thinking back to after this, I'm going to look up that article I had mentioned about that FBI or CIA person on their deathbed who like put that statement out saying like, 
yeah, I think I was indirectly involved in like Malcolm X's assassination because mm-hmm. that probably ties into this, mm. you know? And so I'm just thinking about that. Probably, but, probably. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the rest of it. So Fred's way with words and power to persuade definitely earned him a major red flag by the FBI. So they began keeping close tabs on him and all his activities. During this time, Hoover was the president, and he made it his sole mission to prevent any formation of a cohesive black movement in the United States. Mm. This guy was truly a piece of work, guys. Like, really. He feared that these revolutionary parties would cause a radical change in the U.S. government. Which, like, I, even reading this the other day, I laughed, and even now I'm laughing while even saying it, because it's just that ridiculous. Like, obviously they want radical change like god forbid that they want to change the status quo of how things are (laughs) for them right now you know just like so silly the status quo is beneficial to the people in power and why would they want to change that harini (laughs) right right oh yeah Mm. sorry my bad (laughs) but yeah so that's that's that and so they tapped fred's mom's phone and by may of 1968 fred was on the fbi's agitator index listed as a key militant leader which is just (sighs) but they couldn't get enough on him to quote unquote nail him Mm. so now i'm going to take a little side story we're going to take three steps to the left poison pals do it with me and we're going to go down this path so in comes william o'neill aka bill And he's a normal young African-American guy living in Chicago. He walks into a bar in a predominantly black neighborhood. He pulls out an FBI badge, a badge that is fake. He is impersonating an FBI agent. He tells one of the patrons at the bar that their car is stolen Mm. and that they need to give him the keys to the car. The patron, of course, is afraid. He's staring at an FBI agent and the patron gives him the keys to the car. Mm. O'Neill takes the keys, drives away, and effectively steals this person's car. Okay. So he does this twice, Mm. but gets arrested on the second time around. So his whole motive here is really nothing. He just uses this FBI badge as a scare tactic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People are obviously Mm -hmm. very afraid of the police and will do what they say once you show a badge. And that was basically his in to getting the keys to the car mm. so like i said does this twice gets arrested the second time around and is about to be charged for car theft which was going to earn him five years of prison time except the u.s government was looking favorably upon bill that night an fbi agent by the name of roy mitchell meets bill in the police interrogation room and tells him he will drop his charges altogether and on top of that even give him a monthly stipend all in exchange for infiltrating the Black Panther Party to gain counterintelligence on Fred Hampton. Mm. And Bill agrees. Yeah. And just like that, Bill becomes a secret FBI informant on one of the most powerful and influential black men in the country. Mm. <sighs> it's like, oh, it's just so much easier to pay off a black person to essentially, mm-hmm. what's the word? Betray. Betray. Yeah. To essentially betray their own community. It's it's easier to pay one black person than just fix the system and just make sure everyone lives <laughs> right, right. Uh, equitably and healthily together. Mm-hmm. Absurd. It's just so fucking absurd. It's like they'd rather despicable. go through a whole goddamn conspiracy than just yeah, right. fix the system. But okay, I'm listening. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. Thank you. Um, <laughs> she clears her throat angrily. Anyways, but I completely echo what you're saying, Megan. It's just absolutely ridiculous and despicable on many levels. Of course, they are manipulating and exploiting the position of this young guy. And let me tell you, he is 17 mm. when they pick him up. He's 17 years old. He's quite young, very, um, mm. very impressionable in getting mm-hmm. them to do what, what they want him to do. What is he going to say mm. when the FBI comes to him and asks him to do this thing mm-hmm. for money? This guy is stealing cars, you know, at night. Like, clearly money is not something that mm. he comes by very often. So this is all very appealing. He is trying to survive, right? Bill, in many ways, felt like he was doing good. He felt Mm. he was doing something for his country by infiltrating the Black Panther Party. And what aided in that as well was the FBI agent Mitchell. He never referred to Bill as an informant. He always said, you know, you're working for me. You're working with me. You're Mm. employed by the FBI. You give us information and we pay you. Mm -hmm. He paid him well. He invited him over to his home for dinner on many occasions. He even had him stay over sometimes. Mm. He even held Mitchell's first baby. And that's not to say that they were like super close or like best friends or anything like that. It wasn't like that, but this was going on for three years. He was an informant for three years. And over that time, you get very close to informant because no one else can know. So they developed a very close and trusting bond out of necessity in some ways. And in a later documentary where Bill speaks on his experiences as an informant, he describes Mitchell as a role model to him. But so was Fred. And this is really where he is living this duplicitous life. He's stuck between two different worlds entirely and it's clear he was conflicted wow on many occasions just confused about where his loyalties lay yeah i know the that me watching the movie and watching the documentary on this will probably answer that but like yeah how does one like like okay hear me out here Mm -hmm. for the task that he was given it is impressive that he was able to maneuver himself in a way so efficiently and effectively to Mm -hmm. be like the bodyguard so i was wondering if you if you could like speak on how was he able to accomplish that like right you know what what intentional actions was bill making so that he could be right next to hampton you know what i was saying yeah yeah, yeah definitely yeah and yes there is an answer to that and yes they do the film does a really great job of showing his slow rise and i want to emphasize that although he did rise to the top by the end of these you know Mm -hmm. the three years he was an informant it was a slow Mm -hmm. burn so when he first comes into the party he's just an errand boy you know he's he's really a nobody anyone can technically join the black panther party i'm pretty sure but in order to be in that close inner circle of fred hampton's people which would I would say it's probably like four to five people that's in his closest inner circle. And then he has like the people he would take with him to these meetings and Mm -hmm. things like that. And that would be like another like seven or eight people. So there was like two tiers of entering his close unit. So he first enters the party as this errand boy. And Bill has these monthly meetings with his FBI agent, Mitchell. 
And that's purely just to feed him information, of course. Mm. And at these meetings, they strategize. Mitchell will ask him, like, mm. what can we do? Like, how can we get you closer to Fred? What can we give you or provide you mm. to get you closer to him? And very quickly, Bill picks up that Fred doesn't drive. Mm. He doesn't have a car. Uh, and it's not that he can't drive or anything like that. It's because whenever he does drive himself, he gets you know, harassed or mobbed by other factions or even police. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily safe for him. So he just walks from place to place with his group. Mm. He definitely would be able to reach a larger group of people if he was able to have a car. On At least locally, he tends to mm. walk to most places. And Bill being, you know, interested in cars and things like that, he was like, well, I'm a good driver. I like driving. I could probably be his chauffeur. And so then the FBI provide him with this brand spanking new car mm -hmm. and it's like, you're going to be Fred chauffeur. And that's exactly what happens. He ends up being Fred's driver and drives him to all his meetings, all the rallies and protests and et cetera, et cetera. And indirectly by being his driver, he is privy to these very close and intimate mm. conversations between him and his mm -hmm. inner inner circle. And slowly Bill gains the courage to you know obviously they're having these conversations in the back of the car mm -hmm. he gains the courage to start speaking up and providing his comments and his suggestions and slowly fred starts noticing him he likes the way he thinks he likes his thought process and that is kind of how he gains more trust from not only fred but the inner circle and he slowly gets absorbed into that group so that's kind of how it all happens he joins the Black Panther Party, expecting to undercover these wild plans of violence for the city of Chicago, the takedown of the police, and overthrow the government via bullets and bloodshed. But instead, he found legit activism for the people, figuring out healthcare, daycare for kids, education for the youth, housing, etc. And as he grew in the party, he also mm -hmm. grew close to the members, and he was soon welcomed into the closest inner circle of Fred Hampton. Eventually, by the end of everything, he becomes director of chapter security and becomes Hampton's personal bodyguard. Wow. Of all people to be, it is so yeah. tragic. It is all, all of it is tragic. But Bill's ultimate boss, I guess, would be President Hoover, whose objective was to find evidence that the Black Panther Party were a violence-prone organization seeking to overthrow the <sighs> government by revolutionary means. In 1969, an FBI special agent in charge in San Francisco wrote to Hoover, stating, In San Francisco, at least, the Panthers were primarily feeding breakfast to children each week. And this is pretty amazing. They fed at least 3,000 to 4,000 children every single week because these kids were going to school hungry. There were no programs in place for feeding kids at school like we have now. So they stepped in and they made it happen. Hoover responded with a memo implying that the agent's career depended on his supplying evidence to support his Black Panther Party theory that they are this violence-prone organization. I, this is like, as a Harini, maybe you could attest to this, as people who did, well, I did my undergrad in uh, human development. So, you know, mm -hmm. we're doing research papers, APA mm -hmm. style format, you know, all that stuff. And what do they say? Like, don't don't make shit up. <laughs> your theory is a theory for a reason. When you do your study, when you when you do your experiment yeah. or you, you mm -hmm. ga gather the data for your theory, don't 
uh, don't bias your data. Mm-hmm. Don't look for data that will <laughs> right. that will be a confirmation bias for your theory. And so what I'm hearing is Hoover over here is like, I have a theory. It's not being confirmed <laughs> as I expected it to. Right. AKA his experiment mm-hmm. is failing. Mm-hmm. So he's like, someone bring me that confirmation bias yes, data correct. or like, what's the word? Um, yeah, confirmation bias, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But I'm um, like someone manipulate the experiment so mm. that my theory can be proven correct. So that right. my hypothesis is true. And that's just not how that works. That's like research 101. It's BS. It is BS <laughs> and an F minus. <laughs> that's called a failing paper. Um Research, research 101 in, at UCSD. <laughs> I know. Anyways. Yes. Yeah, so in light of that, Bill was instructed to help incite violence in the group. And he did. He was consistently encouraging the Black Panthers to rally together, get more arms and use mm-hmm. their arms to elicit change and not just speak about it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, no one ever suspected him. And as I am reading the articles, the research, and also watching this film, in my eyes, I'm like, how the hell did these guys not suspect this shady motherfucker? Mm. And they just don't. But that is me watching a film that obviously, mm-hmm. as viewers, we are more privy to the information than the people in this story, in this real story. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and that is the saying of the freaking century now but it's true and i think also if you're just think a little bit about being in in their shoes they cannot afford betrayal Mm. there's already so much betrayal around them as Mm -hmm. you know a community the color of their skin etc list goes on so what they need is unity what they need is solidarity Mm -hmm. to even think about people plotting against them within their own group is just you know it's too much to comprehend in my eyes yeah maybe maybe they were very cautious it was a slow rise to trust Mm. bill this person that they're not familiar with but yeah i don't think that was something that was on their mind everyone was very very close So this was definitely something that blindsided them. Mm -hmm. In fact, the reason why I say that no one suspected him when he kept pushing for these stocking Mm -hmm. up more weapons and saying we should actually put our money where our mouth is and fight against them. We should Mm -hmm. tell them who we are not to mess with us. They didn't suspect Mm -hmm. him. In fact, I think that is why he got his deputy security position because he appeared to be interested in and invested in the safety of the group and upping the security of the Black Panther Party. Mm. That's my personal opinion of how he ended up getting this uh, deputy security position. Yeah. However, Bill's constant push to up security through these violent means wore Fred down quite a bit because he wasn't really a violent person. Mm. It wasn't his prerogative or his priority to incite change by violence mm. or even by threatening violence. His mm. priority was to his people and like-minded individuals and in getting you know the proper health care, mm-hmm. equal mm-hmm. rights, equal job opportunities, not necessarily pushing his agenda through this militia style that Bill was aiming for. After a while, in other articles, it does say that Fred demoted Bill several times away from deputy security down to almost just like an an errand boy as i said earlier bill meets with fbi agent mitchell every month to feed information fbi would take this info and use it to sow distrust amongst the black panther group and other organizations in this rainbow coalition they would write anonymous letters release racist cartoons in the panther's name Mm. to alienate the black panthers from these other organizations and 
Unfortunately, it was successful. They alienated the Black Panthers from the Rangers and the Students for a Democratic Society, which is another white activist party. And it's funny that uh, this is being brought up in my research because the Students for a Democratic Society were highlighted, heavily highlighted actually, in another recent movie about this time, The Trial for the Chicago 7. Mm. Very good movie as well. FBI raided the Black Panther headquarters twice based on this information and even burned down Mm -hmm. the entire headquarters once, which was very tragic for the party. But in the midst of all of this, all this, you know, tumultuous events, Fred fell in love with an intellectual, his equal, Miss Deborah Johnson. Mm-hmm. She was first a college student, and that's how she first came mm. in contact with Fred, because he would do these speaking tours, he would speak at the local colleges, mm-hmm. and he came to speak at her college. And of course, he's a very magnetic and gripping speaker. And then she stayed afterwards to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And she told him, she's like, you know, you're an amazing speaker. People, when you talk, people really listen and take what you say to heart. So that's why it's extra important for you to understand what you're saying and know Mm. what you're saying beforehand. And what she kind of meant by that is like, you got to pick your words carefully. And she's like, not that I didn't like your speech, but I do feel like you could reach a larger audience audience if you had your speeches written ahead of time Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so she offered to become his speech writer yeah that's exactly what happened so she started writing his speeches Mm -hmm. ahead of time for him because up until that point he was just free speaking freely speaking from the heart and he was great at it but like deborah johnson picked up if you had a little more structure you could be that much better right So she started writing his speeches, and through that, they fell in love. Mm. They soon become pregnant with their first child, Fred Hampton Jr., and with the baby on the way, they didn't want to be too far away from headquarters, so they rented a a four-and-a-half-room apartment that was walking distance. Mm. When Fred gets this apartment, he stockpiles some of the arms, or most of the Mm. arms, in his apartment. Bill, of course, knows this. So when he reports back to Mitchell, he tells him that the Panthers kept their stockpile Mm -hmm. of arms stored at Fred's apartment and draws them a map of the apartment, including where the arms were. Of course, this was of intense interest to the FBI because this is essentially their one chance to really get him. Mm. Now, the question that I I know I had at this point that maybe points pals you have question too is, doesn't Bill feel torn like why is he helping the fbi to take down his own brothers and sisters oh no i mean like yes that is a question and i shouldn't assume anything but my brain goes i'm sure that the incentives behind all this is incredibly appealing and i wouldn't on some level i would not guilt someone for wanting those incentives so bad especially if they themselves are in a in a position of not being in power you know like bill as a black man this is an opportunity right and so i can imagine that yeah there's probably moral conflict but living as a black man at that time and having the fbi cozy up to you invite you to dinner hold your babies all that stuff there's a there's a lot of power play there that will definitely influence influence someone to be like you know my life would be better if i follow through because then i'll get these incentives but again that's all just my assumptions so you can tell us harini like if there's an answer does the movie reveal why he ultimately made the decision that he made No, I think you're definitely right. And there is a power dynamic at play. I definitely think Mm -hmm. there was huge incentives for him to do it versus not doing it. 
the film does a great job of showing how conflicted and confused mm-hmm. Bill is, but truly it is hard to know. There is a documentary that Bill does many years later. I think it's in the 90s mm. uh, that they possibly show on PBS. And mm-hmm. in this documentary, he does a detailed account of his experiences and what happened during this time. Mm-hmm. And in his own words, he says that he got to really know the group and what they stood for. And he agreed with it a lot. You know, obviously, being a black man, he mm-hmm. understood mm-hmm. the fight. He yeah. understood why they needed to do this. And he agreed with all of it. And he said that they were right and they were right in the way that they were going about doing it. But at the same time, he was also impressed by Mitchell and felt for the first time in his life that he was doing something meaningful for his country and getting Mm -hmm. recognized for it monetarily. At the end of the day, he says he was just a pawn in this bigger game. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. And I will say that like when they do pick him up as well, like it's not like he was this very... Um, this is me assuming a lot of things from the movie, but the way that they portray him is like, mm-hmm. he is just a kid. He's just like a normal kid and just trying to live life. You know, he's not trying to make changes. He's not trying to be part of these bigger movements. He's not trying to fight for mm-hmm. better opportunities necessarily or things like that. He's just trying to make a buck, you know, mm-hmm. just like, oh, that's just the way things are and whatever, you know. So that's what I'm saying. I'm like, it, it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily like they had to bend his arm you know what i mean to get him to sign on to this whole deal Mm. he wasn't really necessarily thinking of the broader implications down the road he wasn't thinking that far ahead Mm. when he signed on and that Mm -hmm. honestly might have been his his downfall yeah follow-up question to that at the point where he shows doubts when the fbi when mitchell is finally like hey we're gonna make moves like now's the time and he start in bill is starting to show doubts at any point is it shown that Mitchell kind of turns the hand and is like plays kind of that power card of, hey, we've given you all this, like guilting, essentially guilting Bill into like giving that information and being like, OK, yeah, I'm on board with this. You know what I mean? Like, does Mitchell turn that position of white power switch on Bill? Does that make sense? Yes, that does. And yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he does. <laughs> yeah, let me actually speak on that because that's actually a very pivotal point in the movie, I would say. In my research, they don't explicitly talk about this scene. I also mm-hmm. assuming mm-hmm. that this is in the documentary that Bill does, mm-hmm. I think a decade or two later, when he discusses his experiences. But I can speak from the film, at least, in that dinner where Bill feeds him the information that Fred is storing all the arms in his apartment. That is the dinner where things kind of go sour between them. You see Fred, uh, Mm. Bill walks in, you see him swaggering over, wearing a brand new suit, got a taste of that luxury life. Mitchell during this entire time has never been rude to him, has never gotten angry with him. But tonight was when the switch was flipped. Mm -hmm. Bill comes Mm -hmm. in and he's like, yeah, so here's my information for you. I know that Fred keeps arms in his apartment and that's my information for you today. Mm -hmm. And Mitchell's like, so where are they? And he slams down the napkin in front of him. He's like, draw a map of his apartment. I want to know exactly where everything Mm. is. I want to know exactly where the arms are. And that's when Bill starts to get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. He's like, why do I have to do that? You know, like, there's no need. Like, you don't have to raid his apartment. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you that they're there, but they're not going to use them. But Mitchell is quite firm. He's like, draw a fucking map. Wow. And he does. And while he's drawing the map, Mitchell brings Mm -hmm. up, like I said, Bill is part of Fred's inner circle at this point, right? right? 
and mm-hmm. also his bodyguard. And so he's like right up in front and center at these larger meetings, at these Rainbow Coalition meetings. So Mitchell actually comes to one of these Rainbow Coalition meetings up in the back trying to blend in with the American Patriot Party. Mm-hmm. And he's listening in because he just wants to get a better insight into who Fred is, just gaining more intel, essentially. And he sees Bill at the front of the auditorium and he's so into it. So while Bill is drawing this map, Mitchell's like, you either are the best actor and deserve a freaking Academy Award or you really believe Mm. all this Mm -hmm. shit. The fact that I can't Mm. tell is concerning. And then he slides him this little vial of cyanide. He doesn't explicitly threaten him or anything like that. He just kind of leaves it right there. Right. It's it's coded. It, it doesn't need to be explicit. What, True. What is yeah. It, yeah. What's implied by body language and just change of tone, especially the mm-hmm. dynamic between a white FBI agent and <laughs> yeah. a black man who's technically not even part of the FBI. He's just an informant. Like that power yeah. dynamic is totally on display here. So very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, I'm, I'm going to have to watch this this movie, obviously, and see this moment. But like, I think that's yeah. a really great representation of, yeah, like unspoken privilege. And and uh, Mitchell knowing that like he can pull this card yep. without even being explicit about it, you know? So absolutely. Very interesting. Right. And just reminding him that you could be in jail right now, but you're not because of right. me. Right. I'm the reason you're here and I'm the reason it can all go away. Yeah. So now let's talk Mm -hmm. about the actual assassination and and the raid that accompanied that. So Fred's talent as a political organizer was at its height at this time. He was on the precipice of merging Mm -hmm. the Black Panther Party with a South Side Street gang with thousands of members, which would have doubled the size of the National Black Panther Party. But of course, Mm -hmm. as part of the Cantal Pro operation, the FBI were determined to ensure that would not happen. With the map of the apartment that Bill drew, the FBI strategized an armed raid Mm -hmm. on Fred's apartment to get those weapons that were stockpiled there. They knew exactly the layout of the apartment where Fred slept with Deborah down to the furniture placement. Mm -hmm. They had a search warrant for illegal weapons and had this over-bolstered 14-man team. It was literally overkill. So here's how it all went down. And let me just preface this trigger warning the story is very Mm. horrifying (laughs) i don't know how else to put it okay let's get into this on the evening of december 4th fred taught a political education class at the local church as he always Mm. does and afterwards as was typical some panther members would go to fred's place to spend the night Mm. including obviously fred hampton and deborah and then about nine others bill didn't go to the church class that night he stayed back at the apartment and cooked everyone a meal for their late dinner that they had around midnight bill hangs out with everybody has dinner with everyone but eventually does leave at 1 30 a.m mm. at dawn the next morning 4 45 a.m to be exact 14 police officers raid the first floor apartment of fred hampton Mark Clark, one of the Panthers, was sitting in the living room with a shotgun in his lap because he was on security duty. Mm -hmm. The police shoot him point blank in the chest, killing him instantly. As a reflexive reaction of dying, uh, Clark's gun discharged on the trigger once into the ceiling. This was the only shot fired by the Panthers. Mm -hmm. Fred was fast asleep next to his fiance, Deborah. Mm -hmm. He did not wake up. He could not wake up. Deborah was literally shaking him, yelling his name, but he was in this deep sleep. Mm. 
because he was drugged. Mm. Bill slipped a strong sleeping aid into his food Uh. in preparation for this night so Fred would have no chance of hearing the raid and waking up. Deborah, who was nine months pregnant, was forcibly removed from the room away from Fred, who still lay unconscious in his bed. Yeah. The raid team fired at the bed. Fred was wounded in the shoulder. Wow. A fellow Black Panther, Harold Bell, who was in the house, said he heard the following exchange between the police officers. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. The Panthers then heard two shots. According to Hampton supporters, the shots were fired point blank at Hampton's head. According to Deborah Johnson, an officer then said, he's good and dead now. Hampton's body was dragged unceremoniously into the doorway of the bedroom and left in a pool of blood. The officers then just opened fire at the remaining Panthers who had been sleeping in the north bedroom. And I'm going to say all their names right now. Relina Brewer, Ronald, Doc Satchel, mm. Blair Anderson, and Brenda Harris were seriously wounded, then beaten and dragged into the street. Mm. They were arrested on charges of aggravated assault and attempted murder of the officers. They were each held on $1,000 U.S. bail, mm. which is just enormous amount for the time. The police fired as many as 99 mm. bullets. The Panthers fired just one. The surviving victims of the raid were indicted, but the charges were later dropped. And just like that, Bill's three-year run leading this double life was at its end because Fred Mm. Hampton was dead. Mm -hmm. The next day, in a press conference, the police proclaimed their triumphs that they were attacked by this, quote, violent and extremely vicious Panthers and bravely defended themselves accordingly. Police leadership praised the team for their, quote, remarkable restraint and professional discipline in not killing all of the Panthers. They showed pictures of the bullet holes in the apartment, stating that those were shots fired by the Panthers. Oh, my God. But this was quickly challenged by the reporters and now known to be false. Fred's funeral amassed 5,000 plus people and was Mm. a deep, deep loss after Martin Luther King. Mm. His loss was not only felt by the African-American communities, but by all. Mm. That was the story of the assassination of Fred Hampton. So I'm going to pause there. And mm-hmm. I was very nervous to tell the story because I wanted to tell it right. And I wanted to tell it mm-hmm. true to what happened and respectfully because it is so important that these stories are shared. It brings me hope that mm. more Black directors, producers, actors and actresses are being displayed and celebrated mm-hmm. to share their stories through art film writing music etc it's so needed we need to learn from all our history's leaders something that i am learning in my journey Mm -hmm. about understanding american history and the civil rights movement right even going back before the 60s right civil rights history in the united states but like what i know now is the reason why we because this is my first time hearing about it, besides the name of that, the title of the movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. I know that the reason why we didn't know about this, and we probably didn't know the name Fred Hampton, there's very intentional, you know, powers at play that make it so that we don't hear about this individual. There's very intentional powers at play that make it so that we specifically hear about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, but not about, you know, Fred Hampton. This is not like a conspiracy. This is like (laughs) facts. (laughs) Like if you don't if you don't understand that, like there's a very good reason why certain names are buried. And seeing the line of assassinations 
I think chronologically it goes Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. and then Fred Hampton in this scenario. It just seems like a very almost tangible buildup of mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. elimination of any voice of any right right of any voices that could create positive change for one community and even more than just the black community. And to me, as Fred Hampton being the last, per- well, not the last, but you get the idea. In in this time era of the late sixties, to be that last person in that timeline to be assassinated, it just makes sense that his story would not be shared as much. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. really kicking a community when they're down. It's just fucked up. Right. One hundred percent. You said it so well. The systematic killing mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. black leaders in the United States at this time. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. When you're part of that community, you already don't have a lot of people to look towards, you know, leaders who mm-hmm. are brave enough to speak above the fray, to speak out against all these injustices. And when they're all being mm-hmm. killed, it's like, who do we look towards? It literally kills morale. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me think about history. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, like I could give two shits about American history when I was learning about it in school growing up yeah and i couldn't name all the presidents and presidents don't even try to tell me that you guys can too but point in that being is there's so much to our history our american history that we just don't know and it's stories like these that actually are invigorating that are actually mm. inspiring and tells the true story of america and we just don't freaking know about them enough and it's crazy to me So I'm just honored that I could share the story with all of you guys. So Yeah, I think about that a lot too, Harini. So everything I'm about to say is, you know, this is just me speaking personally from my lived experiences. But Mm -hmm. obviously, during us growing up, so we grew up the mid to late 90s, and then really Mm kind of developed in the early 2000s, right? Like those, that's our childhood is technically more so the early 2000s. And obviously, I could say now, like, there were probably problems, you know, plaguing Mm -hmm. the country just as they were in the 60s or 70s and just as they are now happening. You know, speaking personally, Mm -hmm. I grew up extremely privileged despite being multiracial and despite being Muslim. I grew up in a very privileged environment and household where these things just weren't addressed. And it was up to my public school education to kind of fill the gaps. And that doesn't happen because we know our public school system, education system is uh, flawed. (laughs) And and that's where these stories are not being told. And that's a very intentional movement there. Uh, I I felt the same way. I'm just, uh, except for, Mm -hmm. you know, post 9-11, on some level, I'm like, there was something that personally i might have been fighting for in terms of like combating anti-islamic sentiment and things like that yeah yeah. but yeah coming out of like the clinton era which was like this weird bubble of economic prosperity right like isn't that Mm -hmm. correct and this is me with very limited knowledge on all that but like we i can see why we felt like there was nothing to fight for because we were coming out of this clinton era um, where where gas was really cheap, right? <laughs> yeah. Like one dollar, whatever. Just and the '90s were like this weird, quote unquote, good time. At least that's what the media will tell you, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone was happy. Yeah, everyone was happy. Everything was like rose-colored glasses, depending on your like circumstance. I know what you're saying, but it just it makes me even more like, okay, so I know what happened to the '60s, and I know what happened to the '70s. 
Now I need to be looking at what are the things in the 80s and the 90s that mm-hmm. I'm ignorant mm-hmm. to because I just have this perception that it was rose-colored glasses the whole time. And Yeah, and I think not even talking about the 80s and 90s, I think you're right, like prosperous for most mm. people in that era. But I'm thinking like literally last year, you know, like right now, I've never seen so mm-hmm. many people yeah. mobilize to vote in my life. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. I haven't lived for that long, but in the 27 years of my life that I have yeah. lived, mm-hmm. I literally have not seen so many people really come together in unity and solidarity to ask people to elicit change, exercise your vote, because literal lives mm-hmm. depend on this, you know? Our current status quo Mm -hmm. is killing us. We have to do something different. I've never seen so many protests this year, so many people rallying together, supporting other communities and speaking up for other communities, not just their own. It has been very, you know, heartwarming is not even the right word. It's just like, it's relieving to know that we do have each other's backs, you know, like we are in this together. We are mm-hmm. understanding everyone's struggles and we agree that we need to change. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. I was just reflecting on what's going on mm-hmm. now versus mm-hmm. what was going on then. And although it's absolutely not the same, some things have not changed and it is good to know on some levels that we're really more on the same page. Absolutely. So tell us more about the sleeping drug that Bill used on Fred. Yeah, let's get into the toxicology. So Mm -hmm. the poison in question here is the sleeping aid that Bill slipped into Fred's food that night. And I want to go back to that dinner scene. Mm -hmm. As he is drawing out this map, Mm. he slides over this tiny vial of cyanide. Mm. And Bill's like, oh, hell no, hell no. Like, Mm. I'm not going to kill him by poison this way. Like, this is crazy. Like, and I am not going to kill him, you know? In Bill's eyes, he's like, this guy is a great person. You know, you can disagree with his methods. You can disagree Mm. with his rhetoric. But he is a phenomenal human being. And to kill him off this way is just, Mm -hmm. you know, disrespectful. Yeah. So he pushes the cyanide pill back. Mitchell doesn't really push Mm. it further than that. But then, again, this is, I don't know how how much of this is true uh, from the film. Yeah. But it is implied that later on that night, Bill is at some bar that where no one would really know him. And this other guy comes up to him and says, I know you're working for the FBI. I know you're an informant for the Black Panthers. Really tries to spook him a little bit. Like, I know exactly who the fuck you are. And he slips him a different vial. Mm. You're going to give this to Fred and you're going to put it in his food. And they give him this drug. It is super powerful. And they tell him he will just die in his sleep peacefully. Yeah. Somehow Bill finds this Mm -hmm. more palatable than the cyanide and does it. Yeah. But it is unclear if he knew that they were also going to raid the apartment that night and then shoot Fred, yeah. you know? So the poison in question is called Cicobarbital. It is in the barbiturate class and is a short-acting drug first patented in 1934 mm-hmm. in the United States. And it's sort of a dirty drug, as they call it in the biz, and that just means that it hits quite a lot of different receptors for multiple effects, including mm. um, anesthetic properties, anticonvulsant, and anxiolytic, yeah. sedative, and hypnotic properties. And it is the most frequently used drug in physician-assisted mm. suicide in the U.S. So that kind of gives you an idea of, mm. you know, how strong this this drug is, and also why they wanted to give it to Fred. On a general scale, it is deemed a sleeping drug. 
but that is a very intense sleeping drug Mm -hmm. so much so that it's now completely replaced by benzodiazepines Mm. cicobarbital or secanol as it's called was and maybe possibly still is a widely abused drug i don't know if you can still get it on the streets but it is known on the streets as red devils or reds Mm. when it was in use it was a controlled substance and it was a schedule two drug which is the highest Mm -hmm. potential for abuse besides schedule one which is i don't really consider since it's not even used for the public Mm. it's for like investigational use for research so pretty high risk for abuse there also a reason why it was taken off the market Wow. In terms of how it works, cecobarbital acts very similarly to benzodiazepines in that it binds mm. at a distinct binding site on the GABA-A receptor. And when it binds to this GABA-A receptor, mm. it increases the duration of time for which the receptor is open. And it leads to those prolonged effects that I mentioned earlier. The GABA-A receptor is an ionic ionotropic receptor which just means that it is a transporter Mm. that is wedged into a cell membrane and only opens for ions like chlorine potassium sodium Mm -hmm. etc and being the gaba a receptor it is a receptor to the gaba neurotransmitter Mm. which is our major Mm -hmm. inhibitory neurotransmitter in the cns so that's a little bit about how it works and then i went into this article from the national library of medicine which was just a history on barbiturates, which I thought was interesting because barbiturates are also one of the main drugs of choice that Agatha Christie uses in her novels. But but some other interesting things about barbiturates are that they were first clinically discovered or used about 100 years ago in 1904 by Adolf von Bayer, Mm -hmm. who would go on to found Bayer, the pharmaceutical company, Mm -hmm. and later received the Nobel Prize for his contribution to chemistry the following year in 1905. It was a huge breakthrough in the neuropsych world, especially in patients with severe emotional repression, because upon receiving barbiturates, they finally overcame their inhibitions and were able to receive psychotherapeutic treatment. Later, they were also found to be great for treating epileptic seizures and sleep disorders and was definitely used for general anesthesia for surgery. Mm. As you can see, because these barbiturates had many different effects and uses, it caused an explosion of companies creating various barbiturates, 2,500 variations to be exact, of which only 50 made it to market to be used clinically. Mm. From a chemical standpoint, I thought this was interesting. It contains urea, which is a product of animal excrement. And mm-hmm. I thought ours as well. So I don't know why mm-hmm. they made it specific to animal excrement. And malonic acid, which is an acid derived from <laughs> Melanotrop. No, it's not. It's an acid derived from apples, funnily enough. Mm. And then some theories on yeah. the name barbiturates. So there are three different theories. The first one is they think it was in honor of Bayer's friend, Barbara Cohen, <laughs> or it was because he discovered the drug at a tavern near his home that like had a name similar to barbiturates. Yeah. And the last possibility, which I probably think is the most likely theory, is because of the barbed wire appearance of the crystal structure Mm, of the drug. Yeah. And the last thing (laughs) I'll leave you with is the biggest issues with these drugs are that it is highly addictive. You can get dependent on it and it's easily overdosed because it is so strong. Even a small amount will really just put you over the edge. Mm -hmm. And so that is that. So that is the story of Fred Hampton, his life and his legacy Mm. and his assassination, as well as William or Bill O'Neill, his Judas to the Messiah. Wow. 
Thank you so much, Harini, for sharing that story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm going to remain pretty somber for a little bit because yeah. at the end, I'm like this. I don't mean to get into like, what's the word? Syntax or like the meaning of words or whatever. But I'm like, mm-hmm. I've never felt so strongly that this an assassination was an execution, you know? Yeah. And like, mm. obviously, that would make sense. Those two words do go hand in hand because like mm-hmm. the point of assassinating someone is to execute them. Right. Right. But the fact that like he was drugged and then they just shot him. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to linger on those details. Yeah. I know it could be very triggering, but it's just so horrifying mm-hmm. um, and tragic. And that's yeah, all of the things just yeah. kind of sits with me, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I knew this mm-hmm. was going to be a pretty heavy story. Honestly, while watching the film and even even reading and watching some of these documentaries in preparation for this episode, I was emotional. Yeah. Because it's just so ruthless and inhumane. Mm-hmm. I still wanted to share it because I think this story needs to be told mm-hmm. in as many places as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think storytelling is so key. Yeah. And actually storytelling mm-hmm. is something that's been advocated for centuries in terms of just building community. But mm-hmm. in some way that's been lost in our culture, mm-hmm. the culture that has been established by those who are in power, you know, because like, you know, we know storytelling is a huge aspect of indigenous populations native american populations i know storytelling is big in my own southeast asian background right yeah same Mm -hmm. well yeah yes and no because we're storytelling right now i know know. (laughs) and i was actually thinking about this just today i think i was thinking like wow how lucky am i and how lucky are we that Mm. i get to have dedicated story time each week with my best friend where i can just (laughs) tell her a story she can tell me a story and we educate each other and let each other learn about these different aspects of our history whether it's american or the world history whatever yes i do feel in some ways storytelling is lost but in Mm -hmm. other ways i think it's also making comeback they actually think podcasts are digitized and modern version of storytelling to the people right Mm. and i think i can speak for both of us on this where storytelling for me Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite Mm -hmm. things to do i love speaking to people i love Mm -hmm. communicating a story with because that is how we live on. Yeah. That is how these people who are no longer with us mm-hmm. live on in the memories, the memories and the minds of people today. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Harini. Mm-hmm. We can go into our antidotes. Yeah, let's do just, it. Just a teeny weeny bit. Okay. <laughs> so my antidote today is that uh, I've been very lucky to have a um a roommate uh, that Mm -hmm. loves to bake and share her baked goodies with the house now mind you i've actually gone i've lived in this same house for maybe two almost Mm -hmm. three years now and i've had many i've had a few rounds of roommates rotate out Mm -hmm. all of whom have been just excellent excellent roommates um i've cherished every single one of them and some in the past were like very generous and like oh hey i'm gonna make some cookies so i'm gonna share it with the house yeah but the roommate uh, in question her name's janice she has been making like these bomb uh they're like brazilian tapioca cheese breads Ooh. let me pull up mm. the name for it um, okay yeah please do because i'm gonna want to 
get some of that. Is she Brazilian? No, she's actually first gen Salvadorian. Oh, very cool. Okay. I think she was born here in the States, but her both her parents are from El Salvador. Awesome. Hold on, let me type. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> you could take a screenshot of <laughs> Hold on. Megan is balancing her oh mic God, between okay. her uh, knees and her mouth while trying to type this Brazilian cheese pastry into Google. It is quite the scene. Okay, so these mm-hmm. these things are so bomb. They're called pau de queijo. Pau de queijo. Okay. Um, which makes sense because I think that actually translates to cheese bread in <laughs> <Okay>. Portuguese. <laughs> makes sense. But yeah, they're made from tapioca flour. So their texture is like this mm. wonderful, mm-hmm. chewy... And it's like firm mm-hmm. form. It's like nice and like chewy and like you can pull it. Yeah. Long story short, mm-hmm. she bakes for the house <laughs> and I feel so bad. <laughs> I know. Well, this most recent round of Pau de Queijo, I know it's for the house, but I'm the only one downstairs. I'm the only one with the bedroom downstairs. Yeah. I'm right next to the kitchen and she'll That's like right. leave it out. Like, you know, she puts saran wrap oh, and she, it's like sitting on the stove and I'm like, Oh man, how many mm-hmm, times mm-hmm. am I gonna sneak out to the kitchen this night and just eat all these pal de queijo? So <laughs> that's my antidote. I, I love it. Just scurrying on over midnight. Yeah. My antidote is that uh, roommates who bake for their household are just yes. a blessing. So thank you, Janice, <laughs> for it. all the treats. Thank you, Janice, for feeding Megan <laughs> for me. Okay. Okay. So my antidote is. <laughs> um, <laughs> my husband Dave. Oh boy! <laughs> I've just been having. I've just been having a month, honestly. But the last, yeah, I would say a week or two has been especially difficult for me. Not because mm. of anything in particular. It's just that it's been overwhelming. I mean, Dave and I have been together for eight mm. years, almost nine years now. He's such a breath of fresh air for me. You know, talking to him on the phone, I just. We're at long distance right now because um, I'm in San Francisco mm. and he's in San Diego. So very difficult to be married and not live with your partner. Aww. But he is so great about knowing when I need more support and need more love from him. And that's exactly what he did this week. He's been just sending me morning texts every day, um, letting me know like what a light Aww, I am Dave. in his life. And yeah, texting me, reminding me of like, you're a badass bitch, okay? So get up and <laughs> conquer the day, like shit like yeah, that, right? <laughs> Which he knows I love. Like, I need like that tough love talk. I'm not the person that like likes, you know, lovey, no cutesy way. shit. So you need that like empowering, shake you by the shoulders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love him endlessly for that. So. That is my antidote. Thank you, Dave. Love you mucho. Oh, that's dope, dude. Dave is great. We all knew that. But <laughs> oh my god, now I'm like embarrassed. So... <laughs> no, that's awesome. No, I know. That's that's why I don't want to like linger on it because I know how you are with like your privacy and stuff. So that's why I'm like, hey, Poison Pals, this is big that she even like made a shout out to her husband. Like you're witnessing history in yeah. some sense. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, we can wrap this shit up. All right, so Harini, you want to take it away for us? Final words? I also realized we didn't talk about the episode title, but that's okay. Whatever. We don't have to say the episode every, every single episode. <laughs> I think that's. I think we say the episode number more for us so we understand, okay, this is what we're doing right now. <laughs> uh, but whatever. I'm going to switch it up. So until next time, do risk it for that right on biscuit. Hell yeah. Bye. Peace out. Bye.